I'm Jackson Licka, and welcome to this episode of our 2016 Strip-Till Farmer podcast series. Today's program, Adapting Advanced Precision Tools to Bolster Strip-Till ROI, is being brought to you by BlueJet. If this is your first time joining us, I'd encourage you to subscribe to this podcast series, currently available in iTunes, the Google Play Store, SoundCloud, Stitcher Radio, and TuneIn Radio. Or if there is another app you prefer for listening to podcasts, let us know. We'll make every effort to get it added here as well. And by subscribing, that will allow you to get an alert when upcoming episodes in this series are released in 2017. Thanks again to BlueJet for sponsoring today's episode. For more than four decades, BlueJet has been an innovator in fertilizer injection and conservation tillage equipment. Over that time, large acre farmers have found BlueJet to be synonymous with durability, low maintenance, and return on investment. A founding title sponsor of the National Strip Tillage Conference, BlueJet's Strip Tracker was the first strip till implement to combine onboard fertilizer carrying capacities with a stretched and staggered row unit. Visit www.blu jet.com or call them today at 800-658-3127. And a reminder to mark your calendar to attend the fourth annual National Strip Tillage Conference coming up on August 3rd and 4th in Omaha, Nebraska. Make sure to look for more information and updates on the conference at striptillconference.com. Well, precision farming practices and strip-till go hand-in-hand with one another, and the influence of technology tends to be fairly obvious on most farms I've had the chance to visit. This was especially true of the trips I've made to Wallendahl Supply in Grand Marsh, Wisconsin, where Eric Wallendahl and his wife Megan take pride in progressively testing and adopting precision technology. The third-generation farmers run a diverse farming operation, that includes 3,200 acres of 10 different crops, most of which are strip-tilled, utilizing tools like unmanned aerial vehicles, soil moisture probes, and variable rate seeding helps the Wallendals keep pace with aggressive production goals. In today's Strip-Till Farmer podcast brought to you by BlueJet, we welcome Eric and Megan to discuss how their eye for innovation and a willingness to crunch the numbers on precision payback has increased crop production and farm management efficiencies. As Jack said, we're a, a third generation farm. Uh, my grandpa started farming in the 50s in, in central Wisconsin. Uh, he was one of the first people, he actually started more for real estate development purposes, so he was one of the first people bringing irrigation into the state of Wisconsin. And it's actually kind of neat going back into the legacy of Wisconsin. All the high-capacity wells are labeled by the order that they were installed. It's neat when you have number 5 and number 10 and 17 in there. So it's going back and seeing we were always on the forefront of irrigation within the area. Uh, so he, he was always uh, someone that's forward-thinking and, and thought outside the box, and we've tried to uphold that ideals within our farm. Uh, somewhere around 1975, he moved to the Central Sands area where we currently farm. So we've been farming the same soils for around 40 years now. Uh, he did a lot of the, the mapping with the NRCS, so he had a very good insight to what the soils took in order to be productive. Um, and he knew that if without irrigation, our area wouldn't, wouldn't be able to have any kind of production, uh, stable production that, uh, that we can see today. 
Uh, we started out growing uh, originally uh, peppers, cucumbers, cucumbers for pickles, peas, um, uh, both the hot peppers and bell peppers, uh, popcorn, lettuce, carrots, uh, potatoes. Uh, we, I think we looked back and we, we grew somewhere around 20 to 30 crops in our history. Uh, today we grow somewhere around, I think, 10 or so up on that list. Uh, we still have potatoes in our rotation. Uh, farm 3,200 acres, uh, 800 of it is rented out to a potato grower. So we offer them that service with the potatoes. You need to make sure to have a three to five year rotation. And it really helps um, uh, having that rotation in our soil. But then again, that's a very, another diverse uh, challenge within our farms because with potatoes, you're gonna have to do a deep till and essentially we're starting over. Uh, so we, we are really breaking up a lot of the organic matter in the soil, uh, which really means that strip till is very crucial to our land. Uh, because of that, we have, because of the sand, we have a very low organic matter. It was around 19, I think 87, that, uh, a little bit earlier before my dad came on the farm, she saw that we had low, low organic matter in our soil and said the worst thing we can be doing right now is disking every year, getting rid of that, starting over, not having the cover crop practices. So at that point, he said there has to be a better solution. He did some research and found strip tilling. Uh, so ever since then, we've been strip tilling anywhere from 50 to 100% of the farm. Um, and again, he kept that same forward thinking, looking in the farm and, and that we continue to strive forward to do today. Uh, he's made it pretty easy. Uh, we, we, ever since he's been on the farm, we've always been involved in some kind of UW study uh, and, and conferences to, to be at the forefront of what's, what's still going on in the agriculture community. And he makes it easy. He's already got his you know, estate plan, which is a transitionary period in farm. That's, that's difficult to do. Uh, so a lot of our success has been because of our past and, and how we've been set up. Uh, so this is a soil map that we have. Everything that we have on our farm has been mapped, and Megan will get a little bit further into it with a Varus or an EM mapping. Uh, but as you can see here, we're extremely variable with 36% variability. Uh, we can take some of that variability down with different practices that we use on a farm. That shows really why it's important for us to have different adaptive management um, ideas and, and zones to, to manage this land. Our farm is located just south of the terminal moraine where the glacier stopped. Uh, what's that? Or sorry, just north of it, yeah. Um, but where the glacier stopped X amount of years ago. Uh, so you can, if, if you were to look just, uh, just to the east of this field, you can see the terminal moraine, it, it actually is unfarmable there. That's where it starts getting slopes and it's hilly. We have rocks coming out the size of Volkswagens. Uh, and it's not, it's not, I mean, not from here to, it's everywhere, it's, it's unfarmable. Uh, but then, so that whole eastern edge of this field is a really heavy pocketed area with the uh, pockets of clay intermixed with sand. Uh, it, was, it was sitting under a Lake Wisconsin. When the dam broke, it deposited different soils. We have a lot of Canadian soil down in this area because of that. Uh, deposited soils into our fields, and it makes it very diverse. It's hard to see it from the topsoil. You have to look at it from a subsoil perspective. And then if you were to look maybe a mile west of this field, we have a swamp. And everything between that is, is blow sand. Uh, so it's very important from, from this standpoint that we really manage our field based on the different soil texture and soil variety that we have in the area. Uh, so that does give us a little bit more ease to manage some of that. Uh, this particular unit is it's worth strip tilling with a tw our 22 inch uh, Orthman strip till with uh, auto reset. We are on 22 inch rows for 
maybe 75% of our crops. We also have 30, 30 inch rows. Every crop that we grow, except for seed corn and alfalfa, has been in 22 inch rows and has the option of being in 30. So we're uh, really adaptive to whether the, the corn or the soy or snap beans, depending on the crop that we're putting on, what kind of field conditions there are, how busy the other unit is, and, uh, and what, what we feel like the best uh, success rate will be for each individual crop. Um, let's see, so uh, everything that we do uh, for strip tilling, uh, for the most part, is all gonna be spring applied. Uh, it, since we are, uh, we have less than 1% organic matter in our soil. Since we have that, it's very difficult for us to apply anything in the fall and still have it retained, uh, be retained in the soil. Uh, so we strip till either the same day as planting or a week ahead if we're applying banding in the zone. Um, we are right next to a 9,000 head dairy, so we don't always band because we're getting manure in our fields. If we're getting manure, there's, there's no point to be putting extra nutrients down in our soil. It's just gonna go straight through, and it's gonna be a luxury consumption that, that the plant doesn't need at that time, not until, uh, as we're talking, uh, 45 days when the corn is looking at, at setting that, that V4, uh, the rows. Uh, so we are very cognizant of that day length and trying to do multiple applications during the different growing seasons, or growing states of the different crops. Uh, so when we do band uh, with the orthon, Tool, we can band it at a, at a four inch or an eight inch level. We use liquid, liquid banding uh, with an 8253, uh, maybe 4% sulfur, some zinc if we want to throw it in there. Uh, and then we also do a two by two and then some interferal, interferal as well. Um, oh, and then the other thing we do is, is uh, last year we we're probably 75% cover crop with some rye. This year I think we're going to be around 100% cover crop, except some of our soybeans maybe. We'll see how the field conditions look afterwards. Uh, we've seen a, a large uh, response to our inner soils of building organic more, uh, matter because of that cover crop. Uh, I think that's one of the legacies that I know Megan and I want to change with the farm is we, we have been ahead of most of our neighboring farms with cover cropping, but I think there's a lot, especially after this conference, a lot to be achieved and a lot more that can be done. And uh, it's, it's a difficult process. Everyone, know, everyone that's done cover cropping knows it isn't easy. Uh, and it's difficult to be starting over with potatoes. Uh, but I, I think there's additional uh, factors that we can do to be um, increasing the health of our soil. Um, why do we strip till? It's natural with our soils. Everyone strip tills for a different reason, whether it's heavy soil or light soil. Uh, strip tilling is, is great to break up our compaction with the sandy soils. With a vegetable crop, we have semis driving up and down the field. We have combines, we have hoppers. It's, it's impossible to, to have a fully managed controlled traffic scenario uh, be just because of the amount of contracted people that are on the farm without RTK. Uh, so we have to really manage it's a controlled chaos at, at that point. Soil conversation, uh, conservation is one of the keys. Uh, it's really one of the most important reasons that we have to do it. If, if we weren't, it's, it's, it's gonna hurt us in yields by about 30%. Uh, we, we've seen it in, in other fields where, where uh, you have wind erosion, and, and that's on there as well. Wind erosion for my neighbors, and you know, I thank him for it, but, but it, it's just absolutely terrible with that blow sand. This last year, we had a couple inches of snow, but you wouldn't know, because it was brown. It was really bad. Um, uh, we've been talking about it all week. Uh, microorganisms between the rows, I don't think I have to elaborate on that. 
Um, the root zone, it's, it's strip tilling is, in my opinion, made for snap beans. That's a 55-day crop. Uh, they're very shallow rooted. It's really hard to get that root to, to go and, and progress further into the ground. Um, if we can do anything at all to get that root to be stimulated to get further growth uh, quicker, we're way ahead. Uh, we've seen huge yield responses with that. It's very difficult in order to get our, our wholesaler sailor or field person um, on the same board to allow that uh, because they're in it for a risk management standpoint. Uh, but once we get them to sign off, they, they have seen huge benefits from doing it. And we get actually field people, field men coming back to us, requesting us doing additional strip tilling. And we've actually had custom strip tilling done for other farms because of the benefits that they have seen on our farm. Um, and lastly, water infiltration. Uh, with sand, it's, it's not big, it's much of an issue. But we, again, we've seen huge benefits as well, especially with uh, corn. Uh, uh, because we're doing a fertigation method. Uh, when we are strip tilling, the corn is taking all of the water uh, from the irrigation, bringing it down right into the strip, strip till. Uh, I've gone right, right after the fertigation, after the irrigation system has passed over the corn, went through and the row between is still dry after three tenths of an inch of irrigation. Uh, all the water is in that root zone is, or on the leaves, uh, but in the root zone, and we feel that we're using, uh, in 22 inch, we have not increased our nitrogen at all, uh, but we have increased our population and our yields. Uh, so we are around the same inputs but with higher yields. Uh, and a lot of that I attribute to putting the nitrogen where it belongs and allowing it a better chance to intercept that root in a quicker manner. Um, so I'll go ahead and start. Uh, this was the soil map that you guys saw earlier from our various mapping. Uh, what we do with this map for a management practice is we break this map up into three zones, three management zones. So instead of having all the different colors, so we try and manage to all those different zones, three management zones is what we use to soil sample and variable rate spread. Um, so the three management three zone, uh, we take soil samples in those management zones. From the soil samples in those management zones, there's such a high correlation with the soil types from those zones. We can apply those results to soil types, soil fields we didn't soil sample, and we're able to variably spread based on the various map of our three management zones. Who soil samples here? Yeah, I would hope everyone raised their hand. Um, why should you guys care about getting your soils various mapped and variable rate spreading based on your soil type? Why should you care? We saved about $1,000 a field on our chemical, um, on uh, just pot, on, I'm just talking about potash, I'm not talking about our gypsum or our lime. Um, just $1,000 a field. It costs us $2 an acre to get our fields mapped, so that has paid for itself. Um, a, lot of people, a lot of farmers in our area want to know what we're doing when I say we get our fields various mapped and we're soil sampling and we're managing based on those zones. I'm like, oh, that's nice. And then I get to the part where we, yeah, saved about $1,000 a field on our spreading. They went, wait, 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 what did you do? Let me, can I write this down? Who, who, who did your mapping? So uh, with the various map, we also, because we're under center pivot, we variable rate irrigate. Um, this is one of our uh, maps of our variable rate irrigation. The map that you saw, this is the, the prescription that goes on top. As you can see, our watering goes from 0.18 inches to 0.6, with an average of 0.38, 39. 
that's based on EC. Yep. So we base so the maps with the VARES or an EM machine basically takes the electroconductivity readings of the soil. And from those electric electroconductivity readings, we infer soil type, soil texture. Um, and that's what we base our management on. The challenge that we're still having is figuring out which, if, if we should be using topsoil, subsoil, or elevation, or combination thereof. It's really hard to, to mirror the two, and each field is different. Yep. Uh, so there is some fuzzy logic that we can manually input into this to, to correct as we see based on results. So the, the program spits out an algorithm, and we need to set up our bounds and how wide of a spread of watering we really want to see. There's several fields that we look at and we see the prescription and go, that's, that's not right because of this uh, hill is actually a wet hill and we need to decrease the watering instead of having it increase. Or maybe it is a sandy low spot and the prescription has a lot more water on it than, we, than it should, so we have to manually go in and, what he said, fuzzy logic. So we use uh, PCT. That the only other software out there for vibrate irrigation that I know of is the Valley prescription, and that is all manual prescription writing. PCT has an algorithm that's automatic, but um, this is how great this software is. I go up to the help bar, and when I hit the help button, a window appears that says, we're sorry, there is no help directory. We, we are. We're hoping for a better um, software eventually. So the, the way we sample with the three management zones is um, there's a really great researcher out of the University of Colorado named uh, Raj uh, Koshla. And on this PowerPoint, I have a link to his research. Um, and he has created this research where 10 years of research that has shown that soil sampling based on grid sampling, you need about 12,000 points to have statistical um, data to compare. Whereas if you break it into an EC, three management zones, you need about 36 points per field in order to get that statistical difference of soil sampling and being able to have applicable results to those management zones. So we take around 12 to 15 points per zone. Um, and based on those, we get the, you know, so the macro, the OM, and the pH. If you take those results from our soil samples and you put all the points in the red area, the yellow area, and the green area, and those separate sections together. And then you see how well they correlate with each other and then compare to the other zones. There's such a high correlation of the, um, especially the, the positive, the anions, or the, yeah, the anions in the, in the soil type, that we're able to apply those results to the other fields in the management zones. So yeah, our yield data that we've gotten is Last year was only our soy uh, we got yield maps on. This year we're actually going to be able to get um, corn yield data. Uh, every year with the dairy, they decide who uh, harvests our corn, and they have one harvester who has no yield monitors and another harvester who does. Uh, we also hand sample um, obsessively, so we're hoping that we can get really good hand sampling and then the yield maps on top of that to compare this year with our variable rate spreading uh, versus our other fields we straight rated um, and the population trials and all the other studies we have going on in our farm. I think every field basically has some sort of trial on it.
You bring up a good point, though. It's very hard for us to collect yield data because we're contract farmers for vegetables. Mm -hmm. Is there's absolutely no way to have a yield monitor on those. The only thing we can do is is do the weights per weight per truck and yep. figure out the actual length it went. Uh, that that same thing happened with corn. We don't have any kind of uh, control of who's combining our fields. The only control we have is is for our soybeans and our field corn, and those ones we do have yield monitors. But really, that's about it. Oh, the the mapping. Yep. So the company we we got in right away uh, for a company that bought their Varus and their EM machine, and it's it's called Precision Waterworks. They're in Wisconsin. They actually have a presence now in Illinois and looking to expand in Iowa. I think they might be three or four dollars an acre now. Uh, I would expect to get a full Varus mapping or EM mapping. It's probably going to, especially if you're incorporating it with a VRI, you're going to be expecting seven to twenty dollars an acre, uh, depending on what kind of mapping you're doing. And what kind of system and, and yep. information you already have in the system in your pivot panel? Uh, I think for just the maps of your field, and you don't need the prescription and the having them write some sort of irrigation prescription, it, it's a it's less. So just asking for the mapping data. Um, another precision tool we use is uh, we have an NDVI capable drone. This is our drone. It's a pace setter precision drone. Uh, it's one of those tools. We have the RTK and auto steer that is uh, really hard to go back to uh, manual driving. <laughs> uh, this is one of those tools that becomes addicting, and I don't know how we're going to be able to go back to not having this data on our farm. Um, so this is how we use. We get an NDVI image. We, our drone has two cameras on it. It's got a visual and RG, RGB camera, and the second camera is a near-infrared camera. What we do then is I download them into a computer, I stitch them, and then I layer them on top of each other, and that gives us our NDVI image. Um, there's a lot of people that say, hey, send us up the data, and we'll send it back. We'll get you images. Uh, in 1,000 acres that I fly, it's 16 gigabytes of data. I don't know how good your internet speed is, but I, we would still be waiting for, we'd still be uploading and still be downloading because it would just not work for us. So, what was that? Like five hours of field? It would be about you know five or six hours of field to upload and then I don't know how much longer to download. So it works better to do it this way. I have a laptop and what we have is a ground station on it that um, it's like a, uh, the ground station is actually DGI software. So I upload a Google Earth image of the field and I kind of put the pattern I want, how much overlap I want, the height I want to fly it at, uh, the sharp, my turns, the turn's going to be adaptive, like just nice and rounded, or a stop and a turn. And then I take it out to the field, I connect, um, plug in the drone with its batteries, and I upload the ground, the soft, my flight pattern to it. I manually take it off and land it manually. It can do it automatically, but it's a lot slower. Um, so I take it up and I hit go and I just watch it. So you can fly it lower. Uh, we have a field that's uh, a mile, two, two miles south of our small airport, and the planes approach at about 400 feet. So flying at 360 feet really makes me nervous. So I fly those at about 200 feet. Um, I do all of the our own stitching. People say it's really hard. It's not. Um, it just takes. It just takes time and. I, at home, I go home, I fly, I go home, I click some buttons to get a, a long part of the processing over, which is letting the computer do its work, and then next day I can just fly through and get those images um, 
nice and stitched. Uh, this last, uh, the last speaker, I had to get um, an image for a neighboring farmer done, and it took me an hour from start to finish for the um, both images and the NDVI. Oh, for flying and processing? Uh, the whole process? I would say uh, if it's stitched together very well, meaning there's no wind that will make the camera kind of wonky, uh, probably about an hour. Um, but what I do is I go out and I fly a whole day or as much as I can. And I've gotten the process down to a flight plus process of about an hour for a 160 acre field. The resolution we're getting is probably about two meters. Uh, two to one meters. Uh, the 200, the 200 foot flight, definitely a meter or a foot. It's very, very clear. We've flown some for some neighboring farmers that are really curious and we're very open to sharing. And I wanted to share with what we do. Um, and I sent the image to him, and, and he's the kind of farmer that went, you know, this is a phase and it's not really going to be a big thing. And he got the image back and he went. This is great. I can see this, and I can see this part of the field, and I can see where the hillers ripped up some of the vines. It was a potato field. And he goes, I'm really curious about this other field we have. There's this one spot in it. I'm wondering if it's somewhere else in the field. And I was, I was like, I'm, I'm sorry. Is this Mark? I, maybe I called the wrong number. He was, I, I couldn't believe the change in his attitude about the image he got. So. But at 200 feet, uh, we, can, we can get a stand count on corn at, at V1. Yep. Uh, so it, that takes maybe what, uh, instead of 15 minutes of field, it takes 45 to fly that? Would you say oh, something around that? Oh, to do that? a stand count? At 200 feet? So what I, for a stand count is I would fly a quarter of the field. That's, yeah, uh, that is a half an hour to get that image. And then what you can do is actually do a stand count on the quarter of that field or up and down a couple of rows. Um, there's programs trying to come out where um, there's a company up in Minnesota that is a drone company and they sell the EB drones. They are developing a software where you send them a picture and it will automatically count how many stands, or the, your stand count when you send it to them. Um, yeah, or weeds. <laughs> so, go ahead. There is programming in there to allow it to go back into autopilot if, it thinks, if it's in manual and it thinks you're um, not doing very well. So I was landing it at one point, and uh, a bug in the software they have, which I called after it crashed. I said, hey, I was two feet from the ground, and it went into manual and flew into a high line. It's not supposed to go into autopilot when it's below 10 feet. And they said, oh, we know. It's a bug. We're working on it. I was like, this, this would have been great to know before <laughs> I was flying. Um, but uh, I broke an arm and a motor on their drone. It took me a day and cost me $60 to repair it. This drone also has auto GPS tracking on it, so if it does, let's say I push it to its battery limit, which would be very difficult to do because of all the safety mechanisms in place. If I push it to the battery limit and it landed itself, um, which it will do when it hits its limit, it, it sends out a beacon um, and we're able to GPS track it via its monitor. We'll get right back to Eric and Megan's discussion, but I want to once again thank our sponsor, Bluejet, for making this program possible. For more than four decades, Bluejet has been an innovator in fertilizer injection and conservation tillage equipment. Over that time, large acre farmers have found Bluejet to be synonymous with durability, low maintenance, and return on investment. A founding title sponsor of the National Strip Tillage Conference, Bluejet's Strip Tracker 
was the first strip-till implement to combine onboard fertilizer carrying capacities with a stretched and staggered row unit. Visit www.blu-jet.com or call them today at 800-658-3127. Reflecting on Eric and Megan's discussion so far, it was interesting to hear them break down their approach to setting up three management zones per field to help identify plant health and nutrient deficiencies. And one example that Megan shared based on field mapping analysis led to a $1,000 per field savings on spreading potash. With only a cost of $2 per acre to get the field mapped, Megan noted that the savings was well justified. And she's since had success convincing area farmers, some skeptical of the practice, that there can be significant financial savings in a small technology investment. Let's get back to the program now and hear more from Eric and Megan on the value of adding soil moisture probes to their strip-till system. So something else that we're doing is not we're not blindly throwing it out there and saying, well, we guess it's reaching the roots or it's not. We actually use AquaSpy probes, and those are probes that give a four-inch reading down to 48 inches of the moisture, uh, the temperature, and the EC. It also gives you a rooting depth reading, which we don't trust as much. We use the moisture and the EC to infer our rooting depth or go out and dig and check where it is. Um, we can see the, our EC, our nutrients, moving through the soil. We can see the moisture moving through the soil. Uh, so if we're going to go out and fertigate, or, or if we're going to go out and irrigate, and we dig down, we find our roots that are about 16 inches, and our probe says they're about 16 inches, we can go to our probes and say, all right, where is this EC level looking? Where is this trend line for this EC level at? If we see that it is, our nutrients are sitting at about 14 inches, we won't irrigate or if they're sitting about 12 inches, we, we won't irrigate because it means we could push that nutrients through. We need to keep those up on the 12 inch level till we see that EC level, well, decrease. So on the graph, you'll actually see it increase. Um, then we know we can either apply, we need to apply more nutrients or we can actually irrigate because we're not gonna push nutrients to the soil. And we put those in the, so on this map, a 36% variable will probably go in the light yellow areas is where we'll try and put a probe. There's a program where it takes the, the Varus map and the elevation map, kind of combines them and says, here's your middle ground. And that's where we install our probes. So that, that has been really, really helpful. We think we've saved about 20% uh, of our water. We've decreased 20% water use and have increased yields based on that. And again, it is fantastic. Uh, you can really see where that nitrogen is going. You, you can really imply where the fertilizer is going because of the EC zones. Uh, this year, we were able to keep uh, almost all of our nitrogen between the 12 to 24 inch level. Um, last year, we got a five inch rain event and you could see it move down over the course of five days. It went down from, uh, from being at, at 12 inches and then the next day you saw the 12 inch level take a dive and the 16 and the 20 inch level spiked. Next day you saw that take a dive and we watched it go all the way through a soil profile all the way into around the 44 inch level. Uh, because it was so wet last year, our root zones didn't even didn't catch up into that until it was too late. So we did lose the, a lot of potential yield last year because of the rain events. We saw that happen. These fields were in a nutrient management program. We couldn't make it up, but we knew what was happening in the field and we can explain a lot of that because we can see what's happening in the different soil profiles throughout the field. Mm -hmm. 
the reason why we're going through a lot of this effort to correct apply this fertilizer and to strip till and put these nutrients in bands or direct the nutrients to where it should go in these strips, um, all of our variable rate technology has got to do with nutrient management programs. The Mississippi Water Basin uh, Reduction Program, that's, we're in Wisconsin, it's gonna eventually impact us, eventually it will be legislation. We're just trying to get ahead of the curve um, and get ahead of the curve correctly and in, in, in a smart fashion. So we're trying to smart apply that. So if we know we can only hold 20 units of N, 20 to 40 units of N, we're not gonna put on 120. We're gonna put in the 20, or 30, if the, we see the root has taken that up, we'll go ahead and go on with our next fertigation or based on the crop staging, put on the next application. Well, and currently, the way Wisconsin's programs are working for nutrient management programs, it's not based on the soil type. It doesn't matter if you're in a heavy, heavy area in uh, southwest Wisconsin or in the Janesville area or in your sands. Um, we have a different yield goal than everyone else uh, and different intake from the soil. We always try and remain pretty close to a one-to-one -one nitrogen use efficiency of what we're putting on to what we're taking off, um, but we're not getting a lot from the soil, so we have to try and replenish that and spoon feed things on. Our practices are different, and and we can't bank nitrogen from year to year, uh, so that that becomes the difficulty: is how do we manage that and still get high-yielding crops without uh, degrading our soil, uh, because. Uh, the potatoes are harsh on the ground. The, mm -hmm. the corn that we're doing, we're taking it off for silage, so we're not plowing everything back into the ground and letting it break down. And everything that is in the ground, we have very little organic matter. It takes forever to break down. Uh, so it's, it's really difficult to manage in that scenario, and we have to try and spoon feed it and feed the crop as we go. And, and, uh, and I think that's our biggest takeaway from this conference is trying to figure out what strip tilling we can do and how to manage between the zones in order to in, increase, increase that action, mm -hmm. increase the organic matter. Mm -hmm. um, I think for some of the farmers who have more heavier grounds, and we're talking about sands and irrigation, and we can't hold a lot of N, I think the strip till, uh, getting your soils mapped and a probe could really help. You could see your nutrients in the field and maybe you're guessing, well, I think I should side dress now. I'm not sure I could wait another five days. I can do it five days before. I can wait 10 days. This could really give you a visual on where are your nutrients, where are your rooting zones, when do I actually, when should I actually really apply this? I, it's going to rain in a week and I can push it down through or that's my opinion. I'm, I'm not sure if anyone with the heavier soils is, is sold on that yet. So, for oh. a drone? Uh, yes, we can use it. It's, it's a residential. We're, we're flying it. Um, farming is a hobby. Uh, so as, as long as you're flying it and, and we are, are using it only in our purpose and uh, our farm, we cannot fly it for other people and, and charge for them. Uh, we are working at getting an actual license to do that. Uh, hopefully we're getting close to that. It might mean that Megan has to get a pilot license. Uh, so that's, uh, right now we're currently grandfathered in to uh, allow, allowing to, to fly it on our farm for those purposes. As long as we're below 400 feet and I'm a lobby drone flyer and I've got my extra person sitting with me, um, it's legal. When I go to another farm, like I've flown for some neighbor farmers, it's, it's all for free and I explain to them what I'm doing and I, show, I take them out and I explain the images to them. 
And Illegally, you know, you could have under table things, but I don't want to risk that, not for our farm. But And I just enjoy sharing the information. It's just really neat when you get this data back there. The, some of the other farms that she's flown for, they have a drone of their own. It's not NDVI capable. And they're like, uh, you guys may have overspent for what you're getting. Uh, but then she goes and flies a couple of farms, and they ask her back. And they say, they're, you know, they're, they're trying to get her back. And it really, when you start seeing what's going on in your field and, and seeing your mistakes, it's, it's really neat when you can figure out and put a, a dollar amount to what yep. this drone is actually doing for you. If you're interested, afterwards I have our computer with images on it here. We have a field. We're doing a um, 160-acre trial on our 590 program versus a, a full... Uh, Oh, it's the Winfield Gold Standard Program, so it's not just a nitrogen fixing issue, it's all of the micronutrients. And the drone image is not just the NDVI, but the RGB images between all the, the halves and the quarters is incredibly stark. Um, so the AquaSpy probes are 48 inches depth readings, um, down to 48 inches, and every four inches we get a reading. Um, and we have one per crop. If we could have one per field, that would be great. We're working our way to getting that. The probes cost about $1,200 a piece, and then every year there is a $700 fee per prescription. So you could, it's all um, solar powered, and then it goes up to a cloud, and you can access your data anywhere. Yep, every four inches down to 48 inches, you get a reading. In potatoes, the four-inch reading gives you kind of weird readings because of the air pockets in there. Oh, the there's, yeah. yeah, the hilling. Um, we were talking to, um, there's a father and son here from Australia. They've been using probes since the 90s, uh, and they feel like they can't farm without them either. It's something that is an incredibly invaluable practice to us. Oh, it, they're fantastic. Uh, when you install them, again, she's stressing, it, it really, you have to know your field of where you're putting them and you have to install them correctly, otherwise they're not gonna give you accurate data. Uh, for example, we had one field, we actually installed it near the top of a hill, uh, which you would think that'd be nice, high and dry. Uh, and this field is a, a very unique field. Uh, we actually had a UW sole geologist looking at it and doing a couple different studies. Uh, what happened is we installed it directly over a clay lobe, so it actually acted as a little pocket, and we had perched water at 48 inches, and this is actually 10 feet above uh, in elevation the rest of the field. Mm -hmm. This completely surprised us, and, and again, that is below the, the surface area that we uh, were looking at with EM and, and various mapping, so uh, there's, there's a lot of stuff going on, you know, 10, 20 feet below that, that really impacts how your water is infiltrating into the soil. Um, and, and what, what's going on? What's the, what's the name of the program? Aqua Spy. Aqua Spy. Yep. Uh, I, we think the we're trying to remember, it was a smaller company. We think Valmont bought it. Valmont or Valley or another bigger company. Yeah. Yep, you'll find it. You'll get right to their website. Um, I Google Aqua Spy to get the login page because I have not made it a bookmark. So I know you can get there that way. Our strip till is we have an Orthman strip till with auto resets, so we have the rolling bars in the back. Um, it works really well with our sand. We have to have the auto resets because we're hitting rock that are just pushing it right back up. Uh, so we have both the 22 and the 30 inch strip till units. Uh, we are using, mo for the most part, it's an 825.3 blend. Uh, sometimes we add some micros in there, a lot of sulfur, or zinc. Uh, and for that, uh, we don't have, we don't have an automatic variable rate system. Um, it would be either uh, change either by speed or just changing the, the speed of the pump. Um, but uh, 
because we're only putting that blend on and we're putting down nitrogen with other sources, we rarely variable rates our strip till unless it's into a more of a virgin ground scenario uh, because it, we're putting it on for the, for the phosphorus and in our soils that isn't a luxury consumption. I mean, it just has to be available for the crop. Uh, if we were using it for nitrogen, we'd have to upgrade our system a little bit more uh, in order to get that done. But I, I, I feel very strongly that we would be using it along with our various mapping. And if we didn't have manure and the, the availability to, uh, to fertigate and, and to mm -hmm. apply as often as we can at, at such a low cost, we would definitely be using a strip till as an item to, to variable rate into our soils. Um, and I, I think we'd see a huge correlation to yields if we're able to keep them in our soil. So what we do is with the three management zones is have a high profitability, medium profitability, and a low profitability um, areas. So with this variable rate technology, what we're trying to do instead of giving up on those low profitability areas is to really increase the profitability in those areas without with keeping an economic return on them. So after this season, I'm hoping to compile a lot of our data um, and run it, we run SMS, and that has a really great comparison analysis tool, putting our soil maps and these NDVI maps through that and seeing if there, what kind of comparison there might be to the management zones and if we could apply that coming up in the next planting season and run more trials. So for the VRI, SMS is not capable of making variable rate irrigation prescriptions. That's through PCT. So right now I run them through SMS to do a comparison analysis. Then I take the degrees from the SMS, the degree of the field where it needs more application, and I have to write those down, go over to the PCT software, and manually um, write a prescription, or we can do it right in the panel. It's all uh, geotiff images, so geo-referenced um, images, pictures, that we're able to load into our SMS program. I load it in as a geotiff image, yep. Fully color, um, then an SMS, you know, it applies its own color ranges a lot. Um, I go with whatever it decides it wants to color it, and then I put in my own um, my own legend. And that way, is, that's how I'm able to run the, um, the comparison analysis. The most important part is not what colors you're getting, what is the, the, the geographical location of the pictures. That's the best part of getting it through a comparison analysis on SMS. If that's the takeaway from today, that's what I would say, is that uh, we have a drone, we have VRI, we, none of this would have worked. And I'm not trying to knock the NRCS maps. I mean, my grandpa helped develop from Wisconsin. Once we got the, the various maps back, we saw that NRCS, yes, it did have a high correlation to what we're doing, uh, but you're gonna be 40% wrong or 60% wrong a, a lot of the time. So, uh, you're going to get a, a quicker payback than you think uh, when you get your field map. I don't care if you have as much, as much variability as us, more or less. Uh, that has easily been our quickest payback on the farm. Yep. Uh, whether it's planting maps, yield maps, uh, variable rate applications, uh, it, it's been huge. Uh, and, and, and she already talked about what we saved, $1,000 a field or uh, around $10 an acre annually, and that's not talking about the yield increases that we're getting, so that, that quickly pays for it. So what we're doing right now with our pop, on 22 inch rows, we're planting at a, a between a 36 and 38,000 population. And then we're running population trial, big, large strips, halves of fields on a 40, 42, you know, 30, 30 when we go the other way, 34, 32, because we're not exactly sure. So 
we're running all of these trials and if we're finding that a certain variety and it's variety specific as well we've got certain varieties that call for a 36,000 population or a 38 so what we're trying to do is take those populations and take those traits so if it's a semi-flex with upright leaves hopefully when we run a population trial on that another hybrid that is the same relative maturity with a semi-flex and upright leaves we could apply that data to I don't know. It's but a guess. <laughs> I think the results are going to be is that management zone, and we're going to overlay that with our, our EC mapping and, and show. Uh, it's, it's just a question of how much do we use either for topsoil elevation and subsoil. Um, and, and it really depends. This year, I, I really hope we get that yield map because that's going to that's going to show the results. We do a lot of hand sampling and can correlate to that, but I want to have a definitive answer. For every change in population, we try and do between uh, 15 and 40 acres actually. We try and do a, a much larger... The reason why is if the three strips randomly end up being here, it's, it's really unfair. I've yep. had the same population. If you look at three strips, uh, our fields are too variable doing that. So we're, we're taking full, uh, some around... Quarters or halves. Uh, no less than 10% of the field. Thank you, Eric and Megan, for sharing the investment in return on precision farming practices adopted on your farming operation. And again, we'd like to recognize and thank our sponsor, Blue Jet, for helping make this strip-till farmer podcast series possible. I certainly look forward to your feedback on today's program, so feel free to drop me an email at jzemlicka at lessitermedia.com or call me at 262-777-2441. And if you haven't done so already, you can subscribe to this podcast series on iTunes or the Google Play Store to get an alert when future episodes are released. And that will also allow you to go back and check out earlier episodes in our 2016 series. You can also keep up on the latest strip-till practices impacting farms today by registering online at striptillfarmer.com for our free Strip-Till Strategies e-newsletter. And be sure to follow us on Twitter at Striptill, F-A-R-M-R, and on our Striptill Farmer Facebook page. Finally, another invitation to come out and attend the fourth annual National Strip Tillage Conference, which will be held on August 3rd and 4th in Omaha, Nebraska. Again, you can look for more information and updates on the conference at striptillconference.com. Well, I hope that you'll join us again on January 5th for the first episode in our 2017 podcast series, Breaking Down the Biological Value of a Strip-Till System, where NRCES soil scientist Ray Archuleta will share the importance of a systematic approach to stimulate soil health and crop growth. For Eric and Megan Wallendahl, Blue Jet, and our entire staff here at Strip-Till Farmer, I'm Jackson Licka. Thanks for listening.